0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. If you're like me, when you got up today, you kind of felt the time change, right? And um, some of y'all maybe just didn't know, and your cell phone does it for you, and you're oblivious to the fact that the time changed last night. Um, If that's you, sorry to ruin it for you. But, um, but as I woke up, you know, and I felt like the age of my body as I was trying to get moving this morning, I was like, not today, Satan. Um, you know, and, and as Christians, we've kind of adopted that saying, not today, Satan. And, um, and, and blaming Satan for stuff is commonplace, especially in Appalachian culture, right? We blame the devil for everything. The devil's been after me this week. I stubbed my toe. I got sick. My dog uh, died. Whatever it may be, it's, it's the devil's fault, right? And um, we tend to blame Satan for a lot of stuff, and it's kind of like blaming the president for stuff. Um, now before you go out of here and say the pastor compared the president to the devil, that's not what I'm doing. Well, it's kind of what I'm doing, but, um, but we, we, you know, you go and pump gas. You seen, you seen Joe Biden on the gas pumps pointing at the price. Like I did that. You've seen that. And, um, and then when, when we were in lockdown and pandemics, we blamed Trump for all that. And when I was in college, I remember when Obama was president, we had a saying, thanks Obama, right? Like when the coffee wasn't good at church, we're like, thanks Obama. We blamed him for everything. And, um, well, blaming the devil's kind of like that, right? It's not, it's, it's not always the president's fault, um, and, but sometimes it kind of is, right? But it's very rarely directly the president's fault. Um, and so as we think of Satan and his influence in our world, it can be difficult to understand, all right, is Satan really after me? Is, is it like Looney Tunes? Is there like a devil on my shoulder and an angel on the other side? Um, how much influence does Satan actually have Over my life, right? Now, Satan is not omnipresent like God. He's not everywhere um, all at the same time like God is. And so it is probably pretty rare that Satan has directly um, and personally impacted you. Um, However, just like the president's decisions can indirectly impact us in the same way, Satan's influence in our world indirectly impacts the world that we live in. Um, The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. Uh, The Bible makes it clear that Satan has authority and realm in this world uh, to, to kind of roam and carry out godlessness. And so that is the world that we find ourselves living in. I love that Luther used to describe uh, Satan as God's devil. Um, So we as Christians need to approach this topic understanding that anything that the devil does, he's never outside of God's sovereign control. Um, but nevertheless, God allows in his sovereign purposes that we might not always understand, allows uh, Satan to have dominion in this world. And the reason is, is because God is drawing us to something bigger and better and longer lasting than this world. And so as we're challenged in this life by demonic entities and spiritual darkness and Satan himself, we can be assured that we have a better home coming for us, okay? So let's, let's dive into this and look at the topic of spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll cover verses 10 through 20. I want to go ahead and read the full passage now. Uh, Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, "...Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the Word of God. I have three points for you today. We're going to look at the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in as Christians. Uh, We'll take some time to go through each of those six components of spiritual armor that Paul tells us to put on, and we'll conclude by being reminded that we're part of a spiritual army with brothers and sisters around us in the good fight. Let's look at the spiritual battle first. Let me just tell you this in in opening this topic. If Christianity for you is easy, then you're doing it wrong. If, If walking through your life as a Christian is something that you find easy and without burden, then you're not living as a Christian ought to live. Christianity is war. The Bible makes it very clear that living as a Christian in a dark world is going to be very difficult. Um, We're at war in a spiritual sense, and we've got to know who we're up against in this spiritual battle and how to fight it, which is why Paul and other writers of the epistles make it very clear how we're supposed to carry out in this life. Paul encourages and motivates the Christians in Ephesus to stand firm. Um, The first thing he tells them is to be strong. We're doing um, some, a lot of work down at 1145 North Main down the street, our new church building. And it, it's got to look worse before it looks better. That's one of those processes we're in. And uh, we were in there doing demo one day, and there was this really heavy steel plate that needed moved. And I, the size of it, I, you know, I'm a big dude. I was like, I'll just pick that sucker up and carry it out. And, and I couldn't even lift it off, the, off the, uh, the supports it was on. So me and one other guy, we try to lift it together and we could like lift it a little bit, but we realized we're not carrying this thing out of the building. So then we get four guys, one on each corner to try to carry it. Still, we're unable to do it. We ended up getting six guys to carry this steel plate. And if we could have fit more than 12 hands on it, we would have got more guys than that. But as we were carrying this thing, it literally felt like it was gonna pull my arms off my shoulders. It was just gonna fall to the ground. I don't think the other guys were lifting anything. I think it was just mainly, me. Um, And my dad's walking alongside of us, like telling us we're not trying hard enough, right? And and so as we're as we're doing this, I'm reminded of how weak I am, right? That that I need that I need other people around me to be strong. And the the strength that Ephesians 610 calls us to is a strength outside of ourselves. Um, It's a strength that is deeply important for us to understand the, the source of. He says finally be strong what? In the Lord. We're not strong in and of ourselves, we're not strong because we read more Bible than everyone else, we're not strong because we're holier than thou, we're strong in the Lord and it says, and in the strength of his might. Let me illustrate it to you this way, if you have kids, you've probably had moments where you've been carrying things and the kids say they want to help, right? And if you're a good parent, you look them square in the eye and you say, you are of no help to me, you're utterly useless, child, right? Right? No, you don't say that. As a good father, you say, yeah, let's, let's be strong. Let's carry this together. And as a dad, you're carrying all the weight. But I remember my sons, I used to let them help me carry heavy objects, right? And they would put their arms on that thing, and they would get in the way more than they would help, but they would flex their muscles, and they would try as hard as they could to help me carry that, right? But ultimately, the father was the one bearing the load and carrying all the weight. And this is a good picture of how we are as Christians, Um, The Father has not chosen in his sovereignty to let us just sit back and be lazy. Rather, he's put us in in the fight to strengthen our spiritual muscles, to flex them a little bit. He wants us involved in his mission, yet he does not need us in his mission. It is an act of grace that God puts us in the fight. And as we flex our spiritual muscles, we begin to learn something about ourselves. Number one, we do get stronger, but number two, we begin to realize we'll never be strong enough on our own that ultimately all of our strength is in his might and rests in our Lord doing all the heavy lifting for us. You see, we're not going to heaven because we're stronger than other people in the world or because we're better or because we've made better decisions. We're going to heaven because Jesus has done everything for us through his death and resurrection. We're going to heaven because Jesus is the strong one. And so we need to be strong though. We need to flex our spiritual muscles. God does really put us in the fight, but why? What is this strength that we need? What's coming for us? Paul, should we be scared? What's going on here? Well, 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. You see, Satan and his demons have created a physical reality from their spiritual reality. Through their spiritual presence, they have created a physical reality of a world that is filled with sin and fallenness and depravity and darkness and temptations. And we are called to be strong and to resist that. And let me just tell you that resisting sin is war and war is hell. It is hard. It is difficult. I wish the opportunity to sin was not so present in my life, but it's always there. Paul wrote about it, and Paul said it this way in Romans 7. He said, I find it to be a law, a law meaning a certainty that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Why is this the case? Well, it's the case because we have an enemy who has been defeated by Jesus on the cross, yet he remains in this world. He is the serpent from the garden, he is the dragon. In Revelation, and his force of demonic fallen angels now, in a very real way, make it their job to present sin and temptation to saints and humans. So we arm ourselves to resist the temptations of this dark world. Verse 11 tells us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now the devil is powerful, but he is defeated, and we have to remember this. Um, it's like when you when you cut a head off a snake. I, I I remember like seeing this happen, and snakes like their heads will continue to try to bite stuff around them, and their bodies will continue to uh, squiggle around the grass and continue to be terrifying. Right? I'm like Indiana Jones. I hate snakes, and even though Satan has been crushed by Jesus in his death on the cross, he is still around. He still works his kingdom of darkness. Now, he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He's not omniscient. It means he doesn't know everything. He's not omnipotent. It means he doesn't have all power. Um, and, but even though that Satan is not omnipresent, sin is. And he has created a world in which we cannot go anywhere to escape his schemes. They are everywhere. Even though Satan is not, his schemes are omnipresent. So in a sense, his schemes are all around us. We cannot escape them. His kingdom of darkness is everywhere. And, and here's the bad news. It's where we live. The kingdom of darkness is where we dwell. It's where we raise our children. It's where we work. It's where we play. It's where we call home. But for the Christian, this is not our eternal home. It's as if God has given this world over to Satan because he's preparing for us a better home, a true home, an eternal home. But for the Christian, this life is like an away game. I remember in high school playing basketball. Um, Matt Mead was one of my guards that would always feed me the rock, and and I'd you know make slam dunks. And we would go we would go play at Hearts Creek, and it was the worst place to play. Now the good thing about playing at Hearts Creek was I think their rims were about nine foot ten inches, so it was easier to dunk there. But they had their. They, it was harder for shooters because it was a different height, and um, they they kept their gym at a very comfortable 88 degrees Fahrenheit, um, <laughs> and they practiced in it all the time. And so we get up and running up and down the floor, and we'd be exhausted, right? Um, and so we hated playing at Hearts. They all, like. They're like freshmen in high school. They all had tattoos somehow. I think that just happened when you joined the team. And so it was always like an intimidating environment to come into. But for the Christian, living in this life is like an away game. You're not going to find a Christian bubble and stay away from all darkness and sin. You're going to be in the mix of it, and you have to arm yourselves for that reason. Verse 12 tells us about the battle and who we're battling against. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And so when we look at flesh and blood and people who are antagonistic toward the gospel, ultimately they are captives of the enemy. They're not the enemy themselves. We are to go and rescue them. Uh, we are to preach the gospel to them. They are not the enemy themselves. They're captives of the enemy, not even realize, realizing who they're ensnared to. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against the authorities. Now, if we would stop right there, I would say, okay, we're wrestling against the government. All right, any other Ron Swanson's in here? I can get on board with that. I can raise my sword to that fight. Yeah, let's, let's get the IRS. They're the enemy, right? Um, but he doesn't stop there. It's not just political leaders and kings and presidents and empires. He says against rulers and authorities, but then he defines the rulers and the authorities, and it's no one physical at all. It's no government. It's no ruler. It's no king. He says it's cosmic powers, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, what in the world does that mean? That sounds terrifying. He's describing the demonic influence that is alive in the world. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Although it feels sometimes that people are antagonistic toward the gospel and they're the real enemy, they're not. The real enemy is cosmic powers and spiritual forces. The word spiritual, just at its root, in its etymology, it means non-physical. And so he says we're battling against non-physical entities that are present in heavenly places. That means there is an unseen realm, Christians. There, there are angels present. There are demons present. There's all kinds of stuff going on. I don't want to give you a ghost story and scare you to death, but there is a reality of things that we can't see. Now, what's interesting is that... I read some studies this week that show that, probably not surprising to you, Christianity is on a very steep decline in the United States. Um, Jason shared some stats with me uh, a couple weeks ago that I think uh, just in West Virginia alone, uh, the past decade or so, we're 14% lower in church attendance than we used to be. Um and so that's not surprising, right? Christianity is declining. We see that in our culture. What, what did surprise me is when I saw that spirituality is actually increasing. And what I mean by spirituality is not Christianity, but a belief in something more than what we can see. Things like New Age spiritualism, hope in crystals to bring healing or good vibes to you, astrology, witchcraft, the occult. All of these groups agree with Christianity that there is more to the universe than what we can see. Now, what's, um, what, what this means is that non-Christ-exalting spiritual activity is real sometimes, um, but when you see it, like whether it's fortune tellers, tarot cards, some kind of paranormal activity, ghosts, it's either fake or it's demonic if it's not Christ-exalting, okay? And, and what's disturbing is seeing a world become spiritual, more spiritual, while seemingly the church becomes less spiritual, Meaning that more and more Christians ignore the supernatural and unseen, claiming Christ, but they become functional secularists and only believe in what we can see. You see, Satan would love nothing more than to convince you, Christian, that your enemy is an ideology or a political stance rather than a dark demonic kingdom. So what we do is we tend to only focus on the physical. We get mad at people that hold grudges against the church instead of share the gospel with them. We make it our mission to own the liberals or get mad at people who have a different political stance than us. And we make that our battle that we fight rather than a spiritual fight. You see, the reality is we are in spiritual warfare, not physical. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, we, Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Listen to me. We cannot be a spiritual people without spiritual strategies. That means as a church, we don't exist for good marketing and mediocre coffee to get people to come and worship with us. We have to rely on spiritual pragmatism, not just pragmatism alone. And so this means that we have to be people of prayer We pray to a sovereign God that people in our lives who don't know Jesus will come to know Jesus. And guess what? We believe that supernaturally people are going to be raised from the dead. That it's not just our winsome speech, our awkward conversation to invite them to Easter that's going to bring them from the death of their sin to the life in Christ, but rather it's something supernatural that we can't see. And we can't just be people of prayer. We can't stop there. We have to be people of the word, too, that we believe that the the scriptures are alive, that there are hope, that they're the revelation of Jesus to the world. And we believe that when we base our entire lives on scripture, that something special and supernatural happens in us and around us. And we're people of faith, that we proclaim things that we, we can't prove with eloquent arguments, but we're people of faith that believe that there's something greater than what we can see. And so for all that to happen, you have to realize that that's a prerequisite, to understand spiritual things before you can put on the spiritual armor. And then Paul tells us, point two today, is to put on the spiritual armor. Quick story. Um, maybe my third sermon I ever preached was at a revival in Lincoln County, and I had preached a couple sermons and word spreads. We got a young preacher boy in the county, and Brother Buck Atkins, God rest his soul, was leading this revival. I wouldn't recommend the strategy to any church leaders, but... They're holding a revival, and we get there the first night of revival, I'm just there to like sit in the back and listen. And he says, "Well, here's how we're going to do it this week. The Lord's going to tell me every night when we get to church, who's going to preach? And first night of revival. Tonight we have a new young preacher. Brother Will is going to bring the word for us. I felt like I was on Sunday Night Raw. Everyone's excited. I'm terrified. He says the choir's gonna sing one more song. Then, Brother Will, you come up here and open up the word. And so, I've got one choir song to figure out what I'm gonna preach. No prep. I'm flipping through the Bible and I'm like, I already, I always liked Ephesians six. I'm like, there's six sermon points right there. Six points of the armor of God. I'm thankful that those that sermon and others in that time of my life were not filmed or recorded. Um, but <laughs> somehow, I made it through. Um, but this has always been one of my favorite passages of scripture because of the rich imagery that Paul gives us and in, in what we're to do as Christians. Verse 13 says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You see, we have five defenses that are given to us in one offensive weapon. The armor is defensive because the battle has already been won. Again, Jesus has already crushed the head of the serpent. We can't lose this battle. And so we're called to withstand in the evil day, he says. I think the evil day is a reference to times of particular temptation. And if you are going to resist temptation to sin and fall into the darkness of this world, you need to arm yourselves with spiritual armor. And, and the beauty of it is that Jesus has already won for you. So you don't have to be like offensive player of the year. You've just got to like run the clock out. Hearts Creek did this too, bunch of jerks. They 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 used to get up, they would, they would get a two to nothing lead on us and they would stand at half court and dribble the ball. Like they just defense wins championships, especially in Hearts Creek. And um and and they they just trusted their defense that much. We only need a two oh lead and we'll we'll play defense. Um, but God doesn't need you to be the superstar. Jesus has won the victory. God's not dependent upon you to save people. You need to know that. He wants you to share the gospel. I think that should free us up to share the gospel more because I can't lose at evangelism. It's ultimately in Jesus' hands, not my presentation. And so Paul writes, um, and, and, and as he's writing and describing this, most people believe, because he's in prison, that he would have had a Roman centurion that he could have looked at and had a visual illustration of the analogy that he's putting forth. The first thing he says is in verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. No matter how much I have to suck in my gut to button my jeans, I always still put a belt on. You guys with me? You men do that, right? Like, every dude's just still got it. Like, you need a belt in case you need a tourniquet. Or in case you need to like build something in the wilderness, that's just how we're how we're designed by God, and um, and so the Roman soldiers would have been the same way. They would have never went anywhere without putting their belt on. Now their belt was a little more functional than ours. Their belt would have had leather and metal uh, pieces that hung down in front to guard. Important parts of their body. And, and then they would, it was also the, uh, the, the part that held their sword for them. And so the belt would have been a very pivotal point, one of the first things they put on. And Paul uh, compares it to the belt of truth. And so what this means is that truth has to be foundational in our lives. That's the first thing that we put on, as the surrounding of us. Uh, we believe the truth ourselves and we share the truth with others. Secondly, Verse 14 says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate protected vital organs, your heart, your lungs. And and so as that piece of armor was strapped on, it protected their front chest. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Meaning that our heart will long to lurch out after sin and darkness that it sees in front of it. And we have got to put on a breastplate to protect our heart from that temptation. Um, our, our, listen, the, the breastplate is called righteousness. I don't think this is imputed righteousness. When, when Jesus died for you on the cross, he took all of your sin upon himself and he put all of his righteousness upon you. We, theologians call it imputed righteousness. There's never a time that that comes off of you. Okay, You need to know that. Um, but, there's, but there's also uh, works of righteousness that we seek to do. And there are times that that doesn't work. (laughs) Amen? There are times that we try to live holy, and we try to do works of righteousness, and we just fall flat on our face. Uh, That's the righteousness that Paul's talking about here, that we put on holiness. And let me tell you, it is not always comfortable to live a holy life. It's rarely easy to live a holy life. And that breastplate was heavy. It was not comfortable, but it was necessary to protect the soldier. The third thing was gospel-ready shoes. Man, y'all know your shoes are important, right? You go to a shoe store, like I went and bought Micah running shoes a while back because he's doing track, and I didn't know how many types of running shoes there were. It said running on the box, and my wife was like, you got the wrong kind of shoes, and I was like, no, I didn't, wife. It says running on the box, and she's like, it doesn't matter. That's not the kind of shoes he needs, right? And, And so there's just so many different kinds of shoes. And and Paul says the, sh- the kind of shoes the Christian needs are gospel-ready shoes. He says in verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Uh, putting your shoes on means you're going somewhere. It indicates that you are moving. Roman military shoes were um, like sandals on the bottom and boots on the top. It's kind of like a military mullet. Um, and, and if you could imagine like, like Jeremy's ugly sandals that he wears, he ain't here so I can talk about him, uh, on the bottom with the open toes. But they had leather straps that would come all the way up their shins to their knees and would strap on to give them support. And their shoes also were like they had like golf spikes on the bottom of them. And so this was useful, like if you're going to kick somebody in the face. Um, and it was also useful to stand your ground, uh, to give them traction so that they would not be pushed back in battle. Um, And so as we put these types of shoes on in a gospel sense, um, it is an uncompromising gospel. It is a never backing down gospel that we proclaim. I love the firm imagery of that, but then Paul also says it's the gospel of peace. In the midst of a passage that's filled with violence and military metaphor, he says, we're not bringing death and wrath and vengeance to the, to the people we're battling against. We're bringing peace to them. We're actually pulling them out of the fight and telling them, you don't have to be in battle. You can be rescued from the battle by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. He's fought the battle and won the war for you. The fourth thing is a shield of faith. Verse 16 says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Let me describe this shield to you. Most of you probably think of Captain America, right? Because we're Americans and he has that Frisbee golf shield. Um, But that's not at all what Paul had in mind. He had more of like a SWAT type shield that would have covered most of their body and would cover the whole thing if they would crouch behind it. A tall rectangular shield made of wood wrapped in an animal skin or leather. Um, and it was before they would go into battle, they would actually all go past the trench and dip their shields in water so that they would be soaking wet. And when, when the enemy would fire arrows that were on fire to set fire to their camp, um, those arrows would slam into that board and it would extinguish them, the water on it. And so that's the imagery that Paul's giving us as he says, we extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. This shield is the defensive item that's picked up and carried, not worn. This shows us that we have to pick up our faith. It's a very proactive decision by us that we trust in things that we cannot see. That our beliefs, our worldview, all of these foundational things that we have been convinced of by God's Holy Spirit then shape the way that we live. And as you experience burning temptations around you, you fill in the blank of whatever sin you keep going back to that you don't want to return to, yet you find yourself back there. I do not want to blank, commit this sin. What you need to do is, I believe this. And this belief will undergird our resistance against that sin and extinguish that fiery arrow. The fifth thing is the helmet of salvation. Verse 17 tells us to take up the helmet of salvation Paul, again, is looking at a man wearing this uh, helmet. Roman helmets were unique and distinct from empires and nations around them in that they had these beautiful mutton-chop cheek guard type things that went down around their face. Um, like the Elvis Presley of ancient military helmets. And, and they were iron or bronze. They would have been really heavy. And the reason that this is a good picture of salvation is because it has full-encompassing uh, protection. Uh, when I ride my motorcycle, I wear a full-face helmet because my wife loves this, right? And I got to keep it safe and keep it protected. And, and, and Paul is saying that that full-head protection of a, a particular Roman helmet Uh, brought about this uttermost salvation. Um, In Hebrews 7, 25, it says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so we have the, the helmet of salvation. And lastly, verse 17 tells us, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul gives an explanation on what the sword of the Spirit is. He calls it the Word of God. What that means is that Scripture... Here is the only offensive weapon that we have against the attacks of Satan. The only offensive weapon to, to guard ourselves against attack is the Bible. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, as he was fasting, as many of us are in this period, as he was fasting and tempted by Satan, all three times that Satan tempted him, he fought back with the Word of God, with Scripture, with God's words. Alec Bentley, one of our members, is currently a student at the police academy, and um, we took our kids on a homeschool field trip there a couple weeks ago and got to see them marching around and running and singing weird songs and doing all the things they make them do as as they bring them into their training. And he was sharing with me and and the instructors they were sharing with me kind of the the timeline of their regimen, of what their training looks like. And, And I think over half, actually, over half of their time spent in training is working directly with their firearms. Um, and it's important because that's such an integral part of their job, that they have to be safe in using it, and they have to keep other people safe with it. And I want you to just ask yourself, would you ever go into a hostile or a hostage situation with a gun that you've never loaded or shot before or not been trained in how to use? And, of course, the answer is no. But many of us just go through life without arming ourselves with Scripture. Tony Morita is a pastor in Raleigh, which is close to Chapel Hill where UNC is. And he tells this story of a lot of his students that, that attend uh, University of North Carolina, and there's a professor there who's an agnostic, and he asks a series of questions every year at the beginning of his classes. He gets in the lecture room and he asks the room, the first question is, how many of you have ever read a book? Kind of an easy question, right? They're in college, so hopefully they have. And every hand goes up in the air, every, every student. Yes, I've read a book before. Then he asks, how many of you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? About half the hands go down, but it's actually remarkable that half the hands stay up. They're in the Bible belt. Um, So half roughly, usually semester after semester, half the students keep their hands up and say, yeah, I believe the Bible is the word of God. And semester after semester, he gets to the third question and he says, how many of you have read the Bible in its entirety? And every hand goes down. That semester after semester after semester, he has a room full of people who say they believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, yet have not read it. And he asks this question, if you believe that God really wrote a book, why would you not read it? And he's got a good point. If we believe that God wrote a book and we believe it's our primary weapon for life and godliness and holiness, why in the world don't we read it? Why in the world don't we train with it like we were at uh, an academy? We ought to take up the word of God and hide it in our hearts. And listen, I'm not setting you up for failure for your Bible in a year plan. I fail that every single year, I promise. I'm right there with you. But if we're not regularly picking up the Bible and ingesting it and hiding it within us, then we're going to be inadequate in the day of battle when it's our only weapon to use. Now, let me give you the good news, because I know we fail to put this on in so many ways. We fail to arm ourselves. We fail to defend ourselves. We fail in sin. But all of this armor mirrors our good commander, Jesus Christ. Every piece of armor that Paul mentions, I believe he's actually pulling from the Old Testament, specifically messianic prophecy in the Old Testament written about Jesus Christ. Let me share... All of these pieces of armor from the Old Testament that the Messiah would put on Isaiah chapter eleven verse five says righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins Isaiah fifty nine seventeen says he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak Isaiah fifty two seven tells us about his shoes and his feet how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Psalm 91:4 says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Isaiah 49, 2 says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. The good news, Christian, is that as you don all of this armor, Christ has donned it before you. Everything that That Christ expects from us, he is for us. And so, as we put on spiritual armor, ultimately we are putting on Christ and we are hiding behind our great commander, Jesus Christ. Justin Honeaker, my friend, writes about um, this passage of scripture and he puts it this way As we wade into spiritual warfare, we are reminded at every turn that our hope remains directly tied to the triumph of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Without the truth of the gospel, We have no hope of fighting against the schemes of Satan. No hope. We are utterly hopeless without Jesus putting all this armor on for us in the first place. He is our commander. He is all sufficient. He has won the war for us. And we fall in line behind him, not in front of him. And guess what? Not only do we fall in line behind him, but we fall in line with fellow battlers, with brothers and sisters, adopted into the family of God, adopted into the army of God. And so the third thing I want you to see is the spiritual army that we get to be a part of. Don't miss this. This passage was written to a church, not an individual. As Paul writes this to the Ephesian church, he's writing to a group of people, not one person. We tend to look at the armor as something we suit up on, and then we just go out like like we're vigilantes, like we're some Marvel superhero. But the reality is, is Paul wrote this to a group of people. One of the great uh, ancient strategies of the Roman military was what, they, what became known as the tortoise or turtle formation. They would take those shields that were SWAT-sized rectangular shields. And the guys in the front of this formation would put their shields in front of them. And the guys on the left flank would hold their shield to their left. And the guys on the right flank would hold their shield to their right. And the guys in the back would hold their shields behind them. And the guys in the middle would hold their shields up over their heads. And they would march toward the enemy with their soaked shields, quenching all of the fiery darts that came at them. And they would walk step in step, line in line, arm in arm, toward their enemy, and approach them. You see, church, that's a good picture of what we're called to be. We're not gladiators by ourselves in the Colosseum. We are infantrymen behind a good commander who keeps us in step with one another. Verse 18 says that we're praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then see how Paul makes this communal. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Don't give up. Making supplication for all the saints. All of us together are persevering, going at this together. Keep going, Christian. Keep fighting the good fight. Listen, the war that we're in is dangerous, but the only thing more dangerous is to turn away from it. We're given no spiritual armor for our backside. You see this? Got that breastplate, that belt, that shield, that helmet. There, we're given no analogy or metaphor to protect our backside. This is pointed out by John Bunyan. Pastor Jeremy referenced him um, a few Sundays ago in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. He, he writes This Christian began to be afraid and to wonder whether he should go back or stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back. And because of that, he realized that to turn back might give Apollyon or Satan the greater advantage to pierce him with his darts. You see, when we're tempted to give up and run, that's the most dangerous thing we can do. Your shoes are made to stand your ground. Your Savior has equipped you with everything you need to stand firm in the evil day of your temptation. Your brothers and sisters are beside you. Whatever circumstance or trial you find yourself in, we're with you. Don't give up. Don't turn around. Paul caused them to pray for one another, to persevere with one another. And then personally, the the, the Almighty Apostle Paul, right? He'd been through he'd been shipwrecked, he had been he'd been left for dead, he had been beaten and stoned and all kinds of things. And here he finds himself in prison and and he's scared. And he asks for prayer for himself. In verse 19 he says, Also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly for, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's facing intense physical challenges. He's praying for spiritual strength. He's saying, army, back me up. I'm scared. I want to turn back. But pray for me. So as we wage war beside our brothers and sisters, may we encourage one another to stand firm in the faith, to not turn back because we've come too far, and the war has already been won by our commander Jesus. There's, a, there's an interesting story Of World War II and the ending of it, that the Nazis had stationed a small group of soldiers to islands far north in the Arctic Ocean above Europe, a place called Svalbard, and they lost radio contact in May of 1945. They were like me with no social media this week, like no idea what's going on, just totally uh, separated from society. They lost radio contact coincidentally in a month where... Uh, Nazi Germany officially surrendered. They surrendered on May 8th, 1945. And here's the small group of men at a meteorology station who are also trained soldiers in Nazi Germany um, just defending the island. And, and they don't surrender until September 6th, four months later, just out there fighting World War II by themselves. It's kind of a comical thought that's, that's happening as they're out there but eventually, in, in the huge embarrassment, they get picked up and conquered by seal hunters and brought back to the mainland where they're informed the war is over. And it's been over for a long time. And as, as it, it made me think of just as Christians how we fight spiritual battles. And this is what we can actually say to the dark forces that present themselves in our lives. As, as we're tempted, as circumstances beat us down, as as we are maybe tempted to to just step back into the sin that once held us captive that is there because of demonic forces and satanic darkness that's in our world, we can actually speak to that and say, haven't you heard? The war's over. Jesus has already defeated your nation. Your kingdom is done. You have no backup and you have no chance. It's over. And we can herald to demons, as well as people who are captive by them, that Jesus has conquered all, that he has died on a cross to rescue captives of the enemy's kingdom, and to pull us out of darkness and into light, and then arm us for this spiritual battle until the day that he makes a new heavenly home with us, full of bliss and peace and eternity. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.